0: Episode number 27. Welcome to the Higher Life Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Higher Life Podcast. This week's Torah portion is going to be on Kisavo, and the subject is Break on Through to the Other Side. We're going to have a powerful parable about the pockets that jingled, a great story about Rev. Desler, and peace in your home, thinking about your wife 24-7. And now, the Torah portion of the week with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. So the Torah portion begins with the mitzvah b'kurn, bringing the first fruits from the harvest. And the verses say like this, It shall be when you come into the land and take possession of it and settle in it, That you should take of the first of all the produce of the earth, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you shall place it in a basket and go to the place where God chose for his name to reside there. That's talking about the base of Migdash. In other words, you take the first fruit, the first ripe fruits, you put a little string on it so you notice that's the first fruit. Then you collect them all, you bring them to the base of Migdash in a basket. And it continues and it says, And you shall come to the priest who will be in those days, and you shall say to him, I declare this day... To the Lord our God, that I have come to the land which our Lord swore unto our fathers to give us. So he brings all those fruit to the Kohen. The verses continue and they say the declaration that he has to say when he gets there, and he has to thank Hashem, but I'm not going to bring in all the details of that. So the Rambam explains all the details of how this procession worked. Basically, the procession, the people would get it would get bigger and bigger. It's just like this. The pilgrims, bearing their first fruits, would be joined by the official representatives of the communities, and they passed through, and together they entered Jerusalem, so that the process should not be a small one. We have a principle in the Torah, Barov Am Hadras Melech. The glory of the king is displayed in great assemblies, so that by the time that all the people came to Jerusalem, there would be a huge gathering. He continues and he says, The pilgrims would sleep in the streets of the city, and not in the houses, and in the morning the leader would cry out, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. And the ox for the peace offering will walk before them, its horns overlaid with gold. So you have this ox in the beginning with golden horns. And a wreath of owl branches on its head, showing that the first fruits were of the seven species of the fruits of Eretz Israel. And There has to be Dafka specifically, the seven species of Eretz Yisrael, those are the first fruits we were talking about. But I, I, I want to continue because I want to tell you how great this ceremony was. And that's really the, the point I want to bring out here. The flute would replay before them until they arrived close to Jerusalem. The people would chant during the whole journey. They would say, I rejoice when I was told to the house of God, let us go. And they would walk not the whole day, but two thirds of the day. When they arrived near Jerusalem, they would send in messages before them to inform them that they were coming. And then they would decorate all their first fruits and arrange them with the ripe ones on top. Then the princes and the leaders and treasures would come out from Jerusalem to greet them in numbers proportionate to the numbers of the people that came, so they would make a whole party, and everybody was there. And when they had entered the gates of Jerusalem, they would begin to dance, our feet are standing within your gates of Jerusalem. So you see this was a major ordeal. So the question is, why by this mitzvah do we make such a major ordeal? With other mitzvahs we don't. What's special about this mitzvah that it has to have such an impression on us, that we have to make such a party for it? Not only that, but there's a Brachish Rabbah that says like this: Ravuna said in the name of Rev Matna, the world was created in the merit of three things: in the merit of chala, which is separating the chala the pieces of dough when you bake bread; the merit of miser, by giving tithes, 10% of your money, to sedaka; and the merit of bikurim. This mitzvah of bikurim, it says, the world is created in the merit of the, of the mitzvah of bikurim. What's so special about it? What's the reason, the Midrash says, there is no beginning but Bikurim, as the verse says, the first of the Bikurim of your field. This Bikurim is considered a beginning, Reishis, which is connected up with the word bereshis. It has to do with the beginning of the world. So what's so special about this mitzvah that is connected up with the creation of the world, and why do we make such a ceremony over it? So Rav Miller from Gateshead wants to explain this with a little introduction from Parshish Noach. After the flood... It says like this in the verses: "I will not continue to curse again the ground because of man, since the design of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again continue to smite every living being I have done." In other words, God promises that there's not going to be another flood. But continuously, all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease; they shall continue. Rashi learns there: there's really six seasons. There's seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. He goes into the details of the six seasons. So the Svorna wants to explain what's with these seasons. How did the seasons created? This was actually the creation of the seasons. Before that, he says, before the flood, there were no seasons. Why? The earth was perfectly straight in relationship to the sun. In other words, it did not change its angle. It was always straight. So it was always perfect weather all year round. He explains it was always springtime which meant that all the vegetables and the earth and all the people and everybody was super strong. The problem with that, the Sforno explains, that since we were so physically strong and since everything was so vital, that it caused us to sin. So God had to turn the world at an angle in order to make seasons, in order to compensate for our physical strength to weaken us a little bit so we could also be spiritual. But there's another aspect to it, which is the seasons itself. So how did the seasons correct the problem that happened before the flood? So we know in Chazal that the generation of the flood was involved in idol worship. And the Rambam explained how idol worship worked. At first it started out that people wanted to give honor not only to God, but they also wanted to give honor to God's creation, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But little by little, people started to worship the sun, and the moon, and the stars by themselves, disconnected from God as the forces of nature. So what did God do? He tilted the earth in order to limit the forces of nature. In other words, now we have seasons. The summer comes to the end, the winter comes to an end, the spring begins. So the seasons would come and go. And this is what took away idol worship. When people realized that the seasons were limited in their power, when the sun was limited in its power, when the earth would only give forth vegetation at certain times of the year, so they realized that God is underneath everything. The Teva, nature itself is just a covering for the forces of God. And this is exactly why the mitzvah of Bikorim was given to the Jewish people. Because the celebration is the celebration of God creating the creation. When we bring our first fruits, we recognize that it's God who gave us those first fruits. It's the end of the season. We thank God that he gave us the harvest. He gave us the fruits. It's not Tevah, It's not nature. Nature is limited. So this mitzvah brings us back to the source. That's why it's such an important mitzvah. And that's why in the merit of this mitzvah, the world is created, that man should recognize God above and beyond nature. So I want to go a little bit deeper into this to really hit the point at home. There's a Midrash Tanchumen that says like this. Moshe Rabena, Moshe. Moses gazed with Ruach HaKodesh. He saw with the Divine Spirit that in the future the base of Mingdas would be destroyed and that Bikurim would terminate. In other words, once we don't have a base of Mikdash, there's no place to bring the fruits to, we don't have the mitzvah. Therefore, what did he do? He arose and instituted for Israel that they should pray three times a day. Moses said the Jews have to pray three times a day until this day, that's what we do. We pray in the morning, we pray in the afternoon, we pray in the evening, three times a day. So what does it have to do with the Bikurim? Because Moses saw that there wasn't going to be Bikurim, therefore we have to pray three times a day? I believe the connection is like this. We know that Rashi says, You got here today, it says in the, the verses by the Bikurim. And Rashi says, You have to do it one time and not two times. We only do this mitzvah one time a year. And the point is that all Chazal tells us it has to be fresh, new, a new season, the end of an old season, beginning of something new, which is our setup for Rosh Hashanah. This parsha comes right before Rosh Hashanah. The Chazar tells us the Torah always has to be new on our eyes, fresh. And therefore, it's fresh and new. We get the feeling of chius, life. Because what happens if we get caught in a routine, everything the same, day after day, year after year, so we lose our connection with the Creator? We don't feel the life force. We don't feel new. What's new? We don't understand that really God is creating the creation every moment. There's a flow flowing from the heavens to the earth that's creating it. It's constantly new. What does it have to do with praying three times a day? We have to pray at the beginning of each nuzman, each new time. We pray at the beginning of the morning. And then the morning ends. Then we have the afternoon. We pray in the afternoon. Then we have the evening. Each day is broken up into three parts. Each day is new. Each section of each day is new. By realizing that the morning is gone and the afternoon is beginning, it should wake us up. What we think is stable is not stable at all. What we think we call it nature. God made nature stable, but it's God who's doing it. He ends the morning, he starts the afternoon. He ends the afternoon, he starts the evening. God is behind the scenes here. The consistency that we feel is an illusion. And that's why if we don't have the mitzvah bikurim to wake us up, at least let us daven three times a day. What did the Zohar say about Bikurim? It says like this. They need to show and concede that only because of divine chesed do they merit all this and dwell in the land. In other words, when we bring the fruits to the Kohen, it's to make us recognize that it's all chesed, it's all the kindness of God. He brought them into this land, provided them with all this goodness. This is why they must say these things to the Kohen. Why do you have to bring it to the Kohen? Because he represents the chesed of God. The Kohen represents the kindness of God. We have to recognize the kindness of God. Where is our stability? We have no stability. We have winter, spring, summer, and fall, day and night, morning, afternoon. Everything's changing. We're in a constant flux. Everything's changing, but we're not awake. We're not aware. The Ramban at the end of Shmos says, the intention of all the mitzvahs, listen to this, the intention of all the mitzvahs is that we should believe in our God and concede to him that he created us. That's the purpose of the mitzvahs. Kedadah, look over there. In the end of Shmos, at the Rambam, he explains that all the strange things that the Jews are doing are all simanim. They're all signs. To fill in mezuzah, sitzits, all these things are signs to wake us up to realize that nothing is taken for granted. Not going according to nature. Nature is a klipa. Nature is the husk. It's a shell. Inside is the life, the life force, which is God Himself. He's the one giving us life, and that's the purpose of the mitzvahs to Machniah, to bend down and say, thank you, God. And that's why God built into the Tevla, into nature itself. He turned the earth on a slant to wake us up, to realize that what we call stability is really God. So what does it have to do with Rosh Hashanah? The Yom Adin is coming. Now is the time to realize that everything we have is dependent on God, to make him the Melech. He's the king. He's the one who gives us everything. He's the one who gives us health and wealth and happiness and children and everything that we have. It's God. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is all about, to make Hashem the melech. And to realize that we are 100% dependent on Him. Here is a powerful parable to open your mind and help you reach your potential. The Chavetz Chaim has a parable like this. My pockets did jingle, he says. To whom can we be compared? to a certain drunken peasant who has a purse full of copper pennies in his pocket. He got a lot of change in his pocket. He went into town, he's jingling his pennies that everybody should hear them. He's feeling rich like he's Rockefeller. He's clinking his pennies more loudly. He goes to a bar, says, give me a double whiskey and bring me the whole bottle over here. So when he finished the bottle, he took out his pennies, his coins, he paid the bartender and went another bottle. He could still hear the pennies clinking and jingling in his pocket. He was sure he's rich like Rockefeller. In his drunken state, he never had any thought to even make a calculation of how much money he had. And he keeps having bottle after bottle, staggering out of the bar with only a few pennies in his purse. But even though there were only a few, but they still made noise in his pocket, he walked drunk down the street singing. But people just laughed at him and thought that he was a fool. That was the mushal, that was the parable, what's the nimshaw? He says, in our twenties. We have a purse full of copper pennies. We have a lot of life in front of us. The whole world is before us. We have the wealth and knowledge and ability, many years of life ahead of us. So what do we do? We snatch the pleasures of this world. We enjoy ourselves. We party without thinking about how much time we're wasting. We're like the drunk guy who's drinking, not keeping any cheshbon, not keeping any accounting of how much money he has. Then he turn 25, 30. Now he's thinking, you know, we're 35 years old. Half our life is over. We're going around dancing, more pleasures, enjoying ourselves. But we still feel the copper coins in our pocket jingling. We still have a lot of life left in us. So we get older, 40, 50, even 60. So even though we only have a few coins in our pocket, but they're still making noise. We clink them even louder. We don't do any and We don't make any accounting. We just drink ourselves into intoxication. And we pay no attention that life is nearing the end. So he says we're like fools. In the end, we're going to have the heavenly court. We're going to have Rosh Hashanah. We're going to have the judgment. We're going to have the din. And there's going to be a cheshpah and an accounting of how we spent our lives. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. I want to tell a story about Rev. Eliel Dessler. He says, Rev. Shagar Grosbar wrote this eulogy about Rev. Dessler. He says, his power to convey the vision and Torah to others was not just some kind of technical ability, but an expression of his soul, the reflection of his ability to devote himself entirely to others. It was, desi- it was his desire to give to others that led him to clarify most of the difficult theological issues as he did. In other words, he was a tremendous thinker, but he claims that he was thinking why for the Kaya for the Jewish people, to give it over. That's why he was thinking so deeply. So the Torah was, for him was the highest form of giving, an obligation he could not escape. Rev. Grossman says, usually the world measures how great a person is, is how, how many people can he call up and they'll come to help him. But the Torah is exactly the opposite. Greatness is measuring how many people one serves. Rev. Dessler lived with a sense of obligation to help others. The Chazanish said about Rev. Dessler, when sometimes you have a lowly generation, they send a person who can influence the entire generation. He says, Rev. Dessler was a person like that. But he personally was amazed that people wanted to hear Torah from him. He insisted that any power he possessed was purely a function of the great men who whom he had been privileged to learn from. He, he said his power came from his Rabbanim, his Rebbe's. In his mind, he was nothing more than a sponge that absorbs from others and returns the water when squeezed. Nevertheless, he soon realized how much power he had to influence people. So he's uh, now more responsible. Someone who can affect his environment, responsible for the environment to the degree that he extends his influence. He felt more responsibility. He said he used to speak to everybody, all kinds of deep matters to all kinds of people young woman in Gateshead, simple people, Baal At one point, he even considered writing for Israeli high schools. He was a pioneer in the use of stencils and mimeographs to distribute the shirim to far-flung Talmudim. At one point, Rev. Desler even thought to bring a tape recorder into Panovich and send the tapes back to England. Except <laughs> the problem was the technology was new. People were scared of it says like this The idea of a tape recording in the base midrash, however, was still novel in those days, and he was advised not to do so. And there's a footnote here that says like this With Chaim Freelander, he was one of the people who advised not to do it, and to this day, he still feels bad about that. But the point is, you see his ability to influence others and his love for the Jewish people. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. This week's piece in the home is also from Rav Nachman Dynamite. It says like this. We know it in Kisese, unbelievable. Last week's Parsha. It says, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out to the army, nor shall he be subjugated to do anything associated with it. He shall remain free from his home for one year and gladden his wife who is taken. This is what the Torah says for a person who first gets married. So there's four things. First of all, he shouldn't go to the army. Second of all, he shouldn't be even associated with the army. In other words, he shouldn't work on the background and help cook food for soldiers. Third of all, he shall remain free for one year. And the says he shouldn't pay taxes. What does it have to do with this? His mind should be free in order that he should spend time with his wife. Those are all the things that he shouldn't do. Now, what should he do? He has to gladden the wife who he has taken. He has to make his wife happy. So that all those three things took away all of his distractions. He has to be able to focus all of his resources on building his home. This sounds a little bit extreme, no? But the Chazanish says like this, It's the woman's nature to derive pleasure from finding favor in her husband's eyes. And so her eyes are turned towards him. And what does she want in her private life? One thing, to feel that her husband loves her and thinks about her and remembers her, that she is in his thoughts all of the time. So most men, when you tell them that the wife needs attention, what do they do? They're gonna buy her a present. They're gonna buy her something on her birthday. But these presents don't work. Why? She wants to feel that he's thinking about her all day, every day. So how is this possible? He tells a story like this. He has some friends who are not so religious, So the couple were always fighting, and what happened was the mother-in-law did a trick. And she says, I'm gonna invite my son to England I'm going to set it up to make sure that his wife can't come. And that's exactly what she did. And happened to be heir of Rosh Hashanah. And he's going to be gone for a month. He's going to be in England for a month. He's going to be done all the chagin. So the kids have off from school and everything, and he's leaving. This wife is livid. So he tells the man, You better be careful here. You know, this can break. Either this is going to, she's going to miss you and be happy to see you, or she's going to be absolutely furious and it's going to break up your marriage. So he says, I read him this paragraph from the Chazanish. A woman very much wants to feel her husband is thinking about her. So you have to make that your goal. She says, okay, how am I gonna do that? She says, well, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna buy her, I have this list of six different things, very expensive things, I'm gonna buy her for a fur coat and diamonds and all kinds of things. She says, that's not gonna work. What's gonna happen? She's gonna come back, she says, this whole month you didn't think about me. When did you think about me? Six times. Out of the whole month, that's what you thought about me? He says, I know what you should do. So he gives him advice and tells him what to do. Listen, you should write a diary. I want you from the time you leave to write everything down that you did and think that you're writing it for your wife. So he wrote the diary, every day he wrote down, he's telling his wife what he did and this and that, all the things that he did during the entire month. So it happens to be that the Rav called this woman a couple days before the husband's going to come home. And she says, well, your husband's coming home, you're happy? He says, no, I am furious. I'm not going to say hello to him. I'm going to make sure we cut off ties with his mother. I don't want him visiting anymore. I don't even want to say hello to him. I don't want to see him. So he convinced his wife, okay, give me the phone, let me speak to her. He says, listen, when a man comes back from a trip, I at least give him 24 hours. I don't want you to get angry for 24 hours, say hello to him. After 24 hours, we'll see what happens. For the first 24 hours, don't get angry. She said, okay, okay, she promised. So what happened is the guy came home. The kids were there and we had the presents. He says, listen, I have something for mommy. I have something for Ima. What does he give her? He gives her all these papers. She looks at this. What are these papers? This is what you brought me? She says, Yeah, I want you to read this. So what happens is she goes, he says, she she goes in one room and he takes the kids in the other room. He gives the kids their presents. She comes out crying. She's all happy. She forgot about (laughs) she forgot about that. She's mad at his mother. She forgot all of her anger. Later on, she called the Rob and she said, Do you know what happened to my husband? It's a total transformation. Something I never expected since the day we married. All month long he thought about me. Because he was writing this diary to his wife, she felt he was, which is true, he was thinking about her all month. He said, it's very important to call your wife in the middle of the day, ask her how she's doing. And she says, what, uh, you call for anything special? No, just because I missed you. She feels you're thinking about her one day, she'll think you're thinking about her the next day. If you constantly show your wife how much you're thinking about her, you're going to have peace in your home. Okay, that's it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends and leave comments. Thank you for listening. Your voicemail could be featured on the Higher Life Podcast. Just visit RabbiMinterhoff.com to ask questions or leave comments.